evening, everyone. I hope you can hear me. Let me get my make sure my shift's all set up. Okay. Like I should have done that um, before I actually got on the air instead of like after. Anyways, um, today, yesterday was the final signups for our rough trade and the last day to submit your uh, quantum bang information for the art claims for the first set of art claims. Um, and so that went really well. Uh, we got more submissions than I expected, and um, I like that music. I don't know if I would consider it classic porn music, but okay, fine, it's classic porn music. I'm still investigating free music, um, and last night, Julie said the one that I had was depressing at the end, so I have another one to try, I think. I think I do. I think I uploaded it. Um and after the podcast tonight, we are um, going to do some more sprinting on the sprinting channel on Just Right. So for those of you who've never done it before, now would be an awesome time to try it. Well, not now, like in two hours. So in two hours, we'll be um, we'll be doing some sprinting, which will be we riding for fifteen minutes, at twenty minutes. Sorry, riding for twenty minutes and then do a ten minute break and then riding for twenty minutes and then doing a ten minute break. It's actually very productive. So I hope that those of you who um, uh, <clears throat> haven't tried it will come try it um, and join the uh, Discord um, forum, the Discord uh, thing, chat, service, app, whatever whatever you want to call what Discord is. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm late to the game on Discord. I was kind of like being an old lady about it and um, ignoring it existed. And so, but now, you know, we're all on there. And, I mean, there are like, there's like over 100 people on the Just Right server. And um, we're writing and um, we're chatting. And it's just, it's really, it's really productive. A lot more productive than I thought it would be, having all those people on a chat server. Because I figured there would be a lot of um, socializing. Uh, and, there, and there are channels for that. But it's really it's it's been surprising just how um, productive um, people are on the server. So um, I'm really happy about that. Um, just great job, guys. Um, and we we've had several writers who have come into the Just Write server who have been having problems writing, um, who have um, just been kind of slow or unproductive or just not feeling very creative or not feeling very um, like, like they're getting anything accomplished. And some of them are writing three or 4,000 words a day now and just in sprints. And that is crazy. That is crazy cakes. And so I'm so proud of all you guys and all your awesomeness um, and just, you know, so share your experience and really just, just get out there and, um, and, and write with other writers. I think it's very um, inspiring to write and be, and be in that kind of environment with other writers, even in a digital in, environment. Okay, and Julie's on the air. Tonight we're going to talk about – well, she's on the line. Tonight we're going to talk about um, divergence points in different canons to give you guys some ideas about how you can approach both the summer projects and um, National Novel Writing Month later in the year. Because both, technically, both challenges are divergent challenges. Um, the two short stories in July are just kind of getting your feet wet. And, yeah, that was on purpose. <laughs> it is kind of a dry run. There is a design. 
is my design. <laughs> Kira has a design. I did watch the first season. Yeah, I did watch the first season of um, of Hannibal. So yeah, I did use that line with with the knowledge of what I was using it for. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a show that needs some divergence points. Jesus, right? Like the end of season <laughs> one. I think the divergent point might actually be when Hannibal's a little kid, you know, to make sure he doesn't actually have to eat his sister. Um, that well, yeah, be, um, that might. Yeah. 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 And and if you read about if you read about diver- canon divergence, one of the um, ways of approaching canon divergence is to diverge in the canon backstory. Um. But it has to be canon backstory, otherwise you're not doing canon divergence. So you're on um, AU. If you, right. For instance, if you were, if you had Hannibal growing up in France instead of what was it, Lithuania, he, you wouldn't be doing a canon divergence by changing things for him, unless your divergence was getting him sent to like an orphanage, a better orphanage or something, whatever. Um, in the movie Hannibal Rising, you you learn about Hannibal's um, childhood and um, how Nazis took over his family's house and they did some terrible things to the family, and he survived it. Um, and he got an education and sort became of. a doctor. Yeah, I mean he came through, and um, let's just say that none of those Nazis got away with what they did. <laughs> Word. <laughs> they all paid for that shit, but it was too late for him. You know, he was he was pretty much fucked up beyond all all help at that point. But they got what was coming to them, which is the only happy part of that whole movie. Um, but oddly, I still recommend watching it. it. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting um, character origin story for for Hannibal. It it gives him um, mm-hmm. a lot of depth. Um, but ooh, it's harsh. Um, it is harsh, but if you wanted to, if you if you don't care about, the, if you're not trying to stop the can, and, and that is one of the keys with canon divergence is what are you trying to not have happen? And if you don't care about the cannibalism aspect, you really there are a lot of divergence points in season one, like you know a really key divergence point is him not covering up Will's encephalitis. That's probably, if I were not going to be concerned with the cannibalism aspect, that's probably like the, one of the most important points to me to, to consider diverging ahead Yeah, of. I agree. It's because I, I feel like that was kind of an irredeemable act. He treated and Will he like an experiment. Of, like, right. It, but, it, but it wasn't out of maliciousness. It was just out of curiosity. Yeah, which makes it almost worse. Which really highlights the fact that Hannibal's a sociopath. I it it, it really, really does. I mean, he has zero empathy. So, yeah. So I mean, but if you wanted it. It all depends upon what you do or don't want to see happen. And a lot of people who wrote, you know, in the in the Hannibal fandom didn't care about the cannibalism aspect. They weren't trying to, like, redeem him or stop him or anything of that nature. 
Um, so that's where you have to pick your divergence point. Now, if you care about the cannibalism, which I would, <laughs> that's when you look to canon childhood for where can you diverge. Um, but if you don't want to, like, I mean, if you don't want to go that back, far back, your your goal could be just to prevent him from eating more people. <laughs> yeah, he could he, he could have still he could have still eaten those Nazis, but then decided he didn't really develop a taste for it. Um, yeah, I mean, it could have been just a revenge thing. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, those Hannibal fans do run around wearing T-shirts to say "Eat the Rude." So, and there is a primal part of me that actually kind of agrees with it. I wouldn't do it, but <laughs> rude people, rude people are the worst. <laughs> That'll be rude. Well. That eat the root thing was actually kind of brilliant because almost everybody is like, well, if you're going to pick a group of people to eat, that's not bad. <laughs> that's not a bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> so they're thinking they kind of brought that on themselves. Um, but no, I mean, it's terrible that we go there, right? But yeah, it, it's a kind of a brilliant thing that was written in there, you know. Um, We've all seen that rude person yeah. that we're like, you know, Hannibal's going to get you. <laughs> I wish Hannibal existed so I could point you out to him. Uh, sort of, kind of, not sorry. I mean, I'd be more interested in spontaneously evolving into a T-Rex and stepping on somebody than I would be eating them. But, damn, T-Rex shifters for the win. <laughs> um, just don't tell anybody you're a T-Rex shifter. Huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's pick a fandom and talk about divergence points. I can't believe we started with Hannibal, but there you go. Well, um, yeah. But Will, I do think part of Will's thing is he's a criminal profiler, and he's not watched Hannibal, and there would and he would walk through the the crime. And they were always horrifically creepy ass serial killer crimes. And has 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 a deer ever been as creepy as that? No, but I had a harder time with mushrooms, quite frankly. I know oh, the deer the was thematic. Oh, oh, I know oh, the, the I know the deer oh, was God. thematic, but the mushrooms did me in. I don't um, eat mushrooms, and if I had eaten them, I would never eat them again after that episode. But what he would do is he would profile the killer, and one of the things he would say near the end of his profile, he would say, and this was his design. Mm-hmm. Will is a, they, call that line. Empathy, they call it something like mirror, too many mirror neurons and an empathy disorder. He's able to put himself way too easily in somebody else's head, and Hannibal finds that fascinating. Now, Will has encephalitis through most of the first season, and he has increasing symptoms um, where he kind of thinks he's kind of losing it. And Hannibal figures out there's something wrong with him and takes him for um, a brain, you know, I think I imagine an MRI, but it might have been a CT scan, and sees the encephalitis and covers it up and tells me fine. And that, to me, is the point of no return. Now, Hannibal tried to gut Will at the end of the – it's like the most intimate gutting of all time at the end of the series, first season, but that wasn't even it was to like me, that. irredeemable. Yeah, it was 
but it wasn't as irredeemable to me that I was so uh, to me that that is not the divergence point it would have to be the encephalitis because I find that he treated him like a science experiment you know like a curiosity like a bug under glass to be really difficult to deal with but what's really interesting about that stabbing scene is that people on YouTube use it as a hot sexy scene without revealing it that looks- Hannibal is actually like he's stabbing him in the gut instead of jerking him off. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it looks it looks it it like the most intimate until- murder attempt I've ever seen. <laughs> they went all in on that murder um, murder husband thing. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, when I we we until Hannibal pulls away, you you don't even know really what's going on. He's got the bloody knife in his hand, and you're like, oh, oh my god, he just gutted him. <laughs> It was so shocking. It was so shocking. Um, it was, but yeah. But that is the case in the books and in the movies. Hannibal did. Um, when Will figured out what what Hannibal was, Hannibal did try to kill him by um, stabbing him in the stomach. That's in the books and in the movies. So it was, you know, it was a fitting way to end the show. Yeah, my my they did a change in the in the TV show that was interesting, which is that Will Will was still doing the undercover thing to try to catch Hannibal because he had figured it out, and Hannibal took that as the betrayal, the reason why he tried to kill Will. So I got that, but the, there was an interesting divergence from typical canon in the TV show, which is that Will tried to make Hannibal go. He tried to warn him to leave. He hit some point where he was in conflict with his desire to catch him versus not. And so when he comes to the house, doesn't he say, I told you to go? I think but so. it's already too late I by would... that point because Craw- Crawford had figured it out. So it was already too late by that point. But Will, but Hannibal, so I mean, I think that it was, they set up a really interesting thing there in that scene where Hannibal was, was that, that was the end of season two, wasn't it? At the end of season one, Will is arrested for the right. season two. Yeah, at the end of season one, Will is arrested for um, Hannibal's crimes. But um, it was really interesting how Will was so, so much in conflict with his feelings for Hannibal that that the show really did make to, out to be basically sexual, it, very intimate, very loving. They they very much loved each other. It was very. Interesting how the, I don't if I think Hannibal has all calmed at all. I think Will fell in love with Hannibal on the show. Yeah. I um, it's stunning. It's a stunning piece of um work. It's very very good writing. It just um, it's just hard. To if you're going to diverge, really, it, it has to be the encephalitis moment. If you want them to, where you, you would want with, Hannibal to value Will's health over his own curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it is visually stunning. It's brilliant writing. Um, I just got to the point that I couldn't stomach it anymore. Um, it was just getting so gross. <laughs> just like, man, I can't. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't even <laughs> the fact that Will that Will nearly died, you know. It was, it was just how gross the show was getting. So, um and what's worse is that every single person on that show was a cannibal. Oh yeah, yeah. 
unwillingly, of course, um, not, well, Hannibal wasn't unwilling, but, uh, and unwittingly, um, but yeah, he fed people to, to, to everybody. Of course, all the well, members I think- of the BAU unit are also cannibals, because remember that episode where um, yes, they got fed. The killer in the was soup. in the soup. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the killer was running the met the the lunch table, and he was a cannibal, mm-hmm. and he was feeding everybody the person they were looking for. The thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> That was rough. Yeah, the thing is, in Hannibal, I expected that from the beginning, so I was, like, prepared for it. When that reveal happened at the end of that episode in Criminal Minds, I almost vomited. I was like, oh, Oh. you guys caught me unaware. (laughs) I saw it coming. I saw the foreshadowing coming. I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Because they kept going back to the lunch table, and then when when, when they hit the word cannibal, I went, no. Come on, no. (laughs) Yeah. I saw it coming. <laughs> I I wasn't paying. But let's get off the cannibals before everybody in the chat room leaves out of out of the self defense. So yeah. So anyway, if you are a strong stomach, though, I will say that Hannibal is one of the most visually stunning TV shows I've ever seen. If you're if you're made of sterner stuff, I would recommend it from an acting perspective, from a writing perspective, cinematography, everything is just really well done. Okay. It's gorgeous. So let's let's um let's pick something else. Um <laughs> yes, that's great. Something <laughs> Surprise something is not so much worse than surprise butt sex. I agree. <laughs> There's a little Tracy in all of us. I yeah, that's like yeah, okay, so I'm going to go with Ellie's suggestion. I have no problem, because that, that, actually when Charlie met Ian, he and Amina weren't together yet, So, and they had so much chemistry on screen. Um, I I would have no problem with that at the divergence point. Sniper Zero is at the end of season one or mid-season one or something. I'm looking it up. Sniper Zero. I think that I... Can't I, I remember this. Um, yeah, it's in the middle. It's episode it's nine. It's crazy. You remember the episode? Huh? You're all about the end, aren't you? You even know what episodes he appears in. <laughs> I remember the name of the, especially the first one, because um, I thought it was just a very impactful episode in that first season because it really, it really shone a light on how insulated Charlie was, um, how sheltered in a way, um, and that he had to kind of face his own. Um, preconceived notions about things and step outside of his comfort zone. He had to learn how to shoot a sniper rifle. Um, he had to learn to look at things from a point of view that wasn't just math. It was there was a whole that whole psychological element that Ian was trying to teach him. And uh, I thought their scenes together in that episode were really good. And so that is a divergence point. Divergence point. I think it would be really interesting if they had, you know, you know, gotten sparked up a romance at that point. And it, you wouldn't have to really deal with, I think, if I recall, season episode nine, Ian and, I mean, uh, Amita and Charlie were flirting, but they weren't together. Well, Amita was his student at that point, so they couldn't be doing yeah. anything. 
right? He was his, her, 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 uh, either he was her advisor, he was her advisor, right? For her dissertation and her, or her thesis mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, I never wanted to know what was in the box. I knew it was in I the box. Like, I did not want, I wanted to pause that. I, I didn't. I didn't want to see the end. And I don't even like Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> I still didn't want to know it was in the box. <laughs> yeah. What's in the box is like another one of those lines. It's like when you see it, you go, oh, yeah. No, I don't want to know what's in the box. We don't, we don't want to know what's in the box. I think if I was going to diverge numbers, I um, with the Ian pairing in mind, I think that I would have Charlie recruited by the by the um, by the SGC. Oh. After he's met Ian, um, and Don is like freaking the fuck out a little bit, and he's like, I don't know where he's gone. We're getting emails. We're not getting anything else. Um, and Ian's like, um, I got an idea. I got an offer recently. How about I go keep an eye on your little brother? And Don's like, yes, you go do that. Do that right now. I don't know where he is. And then Ian ends up at Stargate Command um, with Charlie. And there is nothing wrong with that. Because if any command needed a bunch of snipers, it was Stargate Command. Yes. Um, they needed someone with a lot of precision to shoot those darts down. They needed um, someone with precision to take headshots of the wraith on the wraith because that was how they brought a wraith down, right? It was headshot? I think so. Because the body shooting in the, in the torso didn't do much. No. But I, I think mean, it would be a lot of fun um, if, um, if Ian and, and Charlie um, went to Atlantis. That would be great. And I just think it's just the hysterical, the idea of um, when they're asking to be, when they come back from Earth, and they're asking to be resupplied and stuff, and they, they're requesting like 15 snipers, and Jack and Landry are like, really? What are you all snipers for? I'm like, dude, I need people who can hit a very small target from a great distance because that's how we put them down, the head. Maybe Ian initially says no because he doesn't want to leave Charlie, or he's curious about Charlie or something. I don't like to write OT3 as a rule because I think two dicks is plenty. I don't mind um, If I do OT3, I like to put a woman in the middle because I, I think that much, just for me personally, that much testosterone in my story and that much dick, I need some, I need a feminine influence <laughs> to kind of, you know, Moderate that I don't mind reading it. I don't mind reading it, but the problem when I write a threesome, um, I, I have no problem because I was I was an all female threesome, so it's not like um, I think that it's any different if it's all men. It's just a lot less talking and all about your feelings. Um, <laughs> There's a lot less talking. <laughs> no stupid feelings. <laughs> yeah, a lot less PMS. Because um, you just don't need three times the PMS in your household, folks. Trust me. Um, so I don't mind reading it. I've read several, you know, all-male threesomes, and I've enjoyed them. Um, I can do it from a sex perspective. I have a hard time writing the relationship aspect of it because I know how hard threesomes are from a practical perspective to make work, and I have a hard time not 
injecting the reality of that into my stories. So um, that's why I typically don't write any threesome actually is outside of like, you know, a one-off sex here or there is because it's hard for me to, to just let go of how, how difficult that is to make work and make it seem because no one wants to read how hard it really is to make it work. That's not entertaining. Right. No, because that's not sexy. Um, I would love to read an OTP with a gender fluid or a non-binary character, but I would not write it. For the same reason I would not write a transgender character, I don't have um, the experience or the emotional content to get that right, and I wouldn't want to be hurtful or insulting with my writing. Um, I don't – I mean, that's just what it boils down to. I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah, I I don't really feel like I have the the a good frame of reference, but um, but I would love to read it pretty... from someone who did have a really good frame of reference. I would want to read it from somebody who's knowledgeable about what it means to be gender fluid. Right? Um, I'd want to be able to trust in the characterization. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I. I Somebody pointed out to me once, they said, you know, cause I, I have a lot of the same reason for why I haven't. Um, I said, well, you're not a gay man either, but you write that. <laughs> like, well, that's true. But, um, but I know what it's like to have sex with a man, and I know what it's like to suck a dick, and I know what it's like to have something in my ass. Um, and comparative experiences but if you go that route you can might as well say that women can only write from a woman's point of view which is not true yeah um but it boils down to i've never had a man send me an email and tell me that my male characterization was so terrible it hurt their feelings yeah in fact i had several readers early on who assumed i was a man Especially when I was writing what might have been, I had a lot of men, I mean, I had more than one male reader assume that I was a man pretending to be a woman in fandom. So that, you know, it, cause it is, it, it's, a, it's a big difference between that and saying, you know, having somebody who's transgender contact me and tell me I really screwed the pooch on my transgender character and, and hurt them. That's a that's a big hurdle. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because I, it, it is, um, and it's also partially. I think that the, we're still in the. There's a lot of um, sensitivity around some things right now. We we had the same discussion about trying to write ace characters into stories, um, which is that I see other writers getting a lot of abuse for that. Um, and what I see in the comments section of these of people's stories is somebody saying, you just totally screwed this up. And somebody else saying, no, I relate to that completely. And it, 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 it you know, it highlights that there is a really broad range and we, 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 everybody should understand that there's a broad range of sexual expression um, and preference and experience. Um, and I that, think sexuality is individual. No, yeah, it is very individual. So no one's going to pin, you know, no one's going to get you perfectly. I wrote um, Draco as pansexual in um, 
demisexual. I wrote him as demisexual in um, in Darkly Lowell. And I was really worried about it, so I didn't dig in a lot on the details of that. But I felt like it was important um, to give some depth to their relationship as to why someone who, you know, believes themselves essentially gay would end up falling in love with a woman and him coming into the realization that he was actually um, sexually attracted to people that he loved versus um, the other way around, falling in love with people that he wants to have sex with, <laughs> which is kind of how a lot of people do. Um and but I was really pleased to get a comment from somebody in a feedback form where they told me that I that they were really they really appreciated how I treated his character and and his demisexuality, um, and and I was just like, well, thanks. I was really worried about it. So I would never want to make somebody cry unless I'm killing somebody that you really like. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's that's as I said, I think that that's just. There's something there that I don't. I don't think there's some dots that haven't been connected somewhere yet in fandom with people because most of the people, actually everybody I've ever talked to personally, who is a, tells me it's a huge spectrum. There is no one flavor. You know, it it is, it is for every person. It is dramatically different, and so I would expect that they that people. I would expect a, a level of tolerance towards that in fiction that authors are going to be putting people somewhere on a spectrum. And yet I see a lot of abuse being heaped on authors who quote unquote aren't getting it right. And it just made me wary from the sense that I don't want to get people that stirred up about something that they're that sensitive about. So, um, that's why I haven't really broached that um, much yet, but there are characters, there are several characters that I've thought about that I go, you know, it would, it would be, it's an easy step to write that character is somewhere on the asexual spectrum. Um, So that's, that kind of percolates in the back of my mind. I just haven't quite gotten there yet because I really don't want to upset people. I know. I feel the same way. In my short 38, I have John being gay and Rodney realizing in the story that he's in love with John, but he assumes he's straight. And so he thinks he's too old to have a sexual identity crisis um, at 40. And, um, but the thing is, is I kind of, in my brain, I've I've always written Rodney as more um, demisexual than, than gay or straight. Mm-hmm. Although in what might have been, he's utterly gay. <laughs> but I think that yeah. in, in in 38, he's, he's not – he never looked at John and thought, oh, I want to fuck him. Until he looked at him and said, oh, I'm, I'm in love with him. And that's the difference. And so it's, it was it's, – if I continued that story and I was very tempted, um, it's that one and my current Hawaii Five O one are really percolating on my brain. Um, I'd want to explore Rodney dealing with those with those feelings with that with that, with that situation where he comes to terms with the fact that um, that he really isn't as straight as he thought he was, but uh, that, it's, that it's more about how he feels. Um, 
it's the emotional connection that he has with John that um, that maybe he didn't even want to acknowledge until it got thrown in his face. I like the idea of exploring that. I think that's, I, I mean, I, I was really intrigued by what was going on with Rodney in that story. Um, so I would totally enable your exploration. <laughs> Rodney's John sexual. That just about pretty much sums up everybody on Elena's as far as I'm concerned. They're all John sexual. They're all, the whole, the whole fucking galaxy See, is John sexual. <laughs> yeah. I um I even plot a teen agent of John Sexual. I did plot a Teen Wolf story that I I haven't I haven't started working on it yet, but I did plot a Teen Wolf story where where Styles is demisexual because um, I was looking for I was in the story and it kind of came up kind of organically because I was trying to explain away his bizarre crush on Lydia, which the more I see of Canon, the less I understand it, um, and. What I, you know, what I wrote in my plot notes was that it was he initially kind of had a crush on her, you know, like her her her, her intellect, but then it was all just kind of a diversion because he never, when everybody else was starting to develop sexual feelings for other people, he didn't, and so he just stayed latched onto that to feel like he was part of everybody else, and then one day he, um, he, he comes to his own conclusion through research that he's ace. And he just isn't sharing that. He continues on with the, you know, comments about his five-year plan to get with Lydia, even though he isn't interested in her at all, um, not sexually anyway. And um, his perception of, you know, he started to accept this about himself, and he's struggling a little bit with, you know, telling people when he starts having feelings for, like, sexual attraction to Derek, and that's when he realizes that, it's a little bit more complicated and he's discovering that this part of himself that he needed to have actual romantic feelings for somebody for that, for, you know, the, the sexual component to, to be there. Um, but it kind of wound up being a little bit more involved in me trying to explain that crush, <laughs> but that's kind of the way I approached <laughs> it. Um, but I think it's a really natural progression, actually. I th- that's a very good um, path for his character to explain that canon situation and to also you know instead of just brushing it aside or making it not important which, which i think is always a mistake um because when you brush aside details that your can that, that your character already has that can give them depth um you're just you're ruining an opportunity for yourself yeah so i mean it's well, not like a very where would I what? What are your divergence points for? Let's see. Uh, now, as far as numbers go, I really do. Charlie's not my most interesting character in, in numbers. I'm, but I am also fond of Dawn, and um, because hello, he wears a holster, and I like holsters. <laughs> the, the thigh holsters, yeah. The Dawn thigh, holster thigh holsters. Is, is really he wears well. them a lot. <laughs> Let's let's just give a cheer for tactical gear. Um, Yay! And, tactical gear. And there's a very good re- there's a really good reason why in tactical gear they they put that gun down lower. Um, but it's sexy as hell. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Tactical. 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 Very attractive. And, 
I wouldn't have expected it until Numbers. I was like, I'd always seen him as kind of a dorky character. And then Numbers, the first time I saw him. I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah. And and then you go into the first episode of Numbers, I was like, holy crap, what happened to him? Some people just need a little age on them. Wow. Um, You grew up nice. (laughs) Thank you. And thank your mama, too. But if I was going to diverge with um, with with Dawn, I one thing that always bothered me about the show was and the show was is, is about Charlie. Yes, it's that's the vehicle. It's it's his vehicle. Um, but I always feel like Dawn's career took a back seat to making Charlie happy. Mm-hmm. And actually, honestly, Dawn's life took a backseat to making Charlie happy. I mean, their mother went off to, to to college with Charlie when he was a little kid, left Dawn at home with the dad. Yep. Princeton, if I remember so, correctly. Yeah, so it will be really interesting if um, if Dawn got an opportunity to be recruited by the SGC. If, you know, Don got something, um, earned something for himself that is pretty awesome and fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I do find Charlie a more interesting character, so I would tend to focus on him. I like Don, but he is... In my, in my, just like my mental plotting and stuff, he's more of a utility character. Unless he's in a pairing, um, it's, 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 it would all depend on what I was doing, you know. Like if I were just focusing on a relationship story for Charlie, I would definitely do it at Sniper Zero. Um, but if you're doing something a little bit more plotty, like where they go to go to Atlantis or something, I probably would situate it a little bit later because I would want them to go to Atlantis. Um, or maybe not. Um, probably in season two or three, late late two, maybe three. And I think that actually lines up with the second season of Numbers. Not that you have to worry about, but it, sometimes when can the canon timelines actually line up well, I like to use it's nice them because it yeah it, it makes my life easier. Like as opposed to trying to slide. I mean, one of my stories, I think I slid the Stargate canon a decade. And if I do have to move one story's canon around, I usually do it by some chunk of five or something as much as possible because it just makes it easier to, to calculate time. Keep the date. Yeah. It, yeah. If I can I move it by a decade, that's great. Um, What would be really interesting is that what if Don and Ian weren't in fugitive recovery before the show started? What if they were part of the SGC? You mean so like home? He comes home when his mom gets sick. Yeah. That'd be interesting.
I'm not necessarily talking about his career, Dark, but more about just him as a person, just exploring him as a person and giving him giving him some depth and giving him something um, that he earned for himself. And it may not even be at the FBI. I mean, just, just something, just, you know, just, Yeah, I, uh, Dark Seraphine has a point that the head of the violent crime unit in L.A. is a big um, deal, although he only oh, has yeah. four first team. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of once you make once you make a team lead at the um, at the FBI and being in the L.A. office is a big deal. Um, there aren't there isn't there I mean it, it's big jumps. Don's relationship track in the in canon was a hot mess. It was just it was a hot mess, and maybe that's part of the reason why I'm so dissatisfied with this character, this character arc. Is like I would just like him to just fall really deeply head over heels. I'm kind of stupid with it, love. And even in the end, um, when he asked Robin to marry him, it seems more like an obligation. Yeah. Well, it felt like they were doing something to wrap the show up. It didn't feel organic in any way. Um, yeah, it didn't feel right to me at all. I was like, that's eh. I, I didn't like, like the their relationship with Robin, Robin, well. I just don't think it it was the right choice. I liked him better with Liz. Um, they had something hot going on, something passionate. Uh, I don't. I didn't see that passion with with Robin. Yeah, I agree. Um, so they did, his career was, his career actually took a kind of a dip several times. Um, and then his relationship life never really went anywhere. Whereas it felt like Charlie, you know, was progressively working towards marrying Amita and then his career was really great. He could have taken anything he wanted, could have done anything he wanted, the NSA would have taken him on full-time in a heartbeat. And so I agree with you. It felt like comparatively that, that Don's arc was flatter. So it, it would be fun. It would be fun to bolster that a little bit. But I would honestly like to see him climb Colby like a tree. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Colby needs to be climbed. Truth, truth be known. <laughs> I don't think Colby's a good fit for um, Charlie, and that's a popular pairing in that um, in that fandom. But I don't. It isn't my. It isn't my jam. But I do think that Don and Colby would be hot. Mm-hmm. And Don and Colby pair. and Liz would be even hotter. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Because um, Liz was banging. Real, what? That woman was gorgeous. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she was. You let her little fucking know. They just made her more attractive. She's just cute as fuck. Um, I did. The fandom tends to pair Colby and David a lot. Um, 
I never saw, I mean, I thought they were good friends, but I never picked up romantic chemistry between them, even the potential of it. Uh, but I get why people go there because they spend a lot of time together on screen and you don't have to deal with the issue of Don being Colby's supervisor. But, um, Yeah. I think using a relationship is a good way to um to kind of do a canon divergence. You give them a relationship they didn't originally have and let that ripple out. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It was um not a relationship issue. John's very dominant. Yeah, it's sort of like when I tried to plot a, a numbers Sentinel Guide story, you know. I couldn't make Don the guide. I tried. I was like, nope. It, I honestly think that, that, um, that's a, in a BDSM world, Liz and Don would Don would have never hooked up. They're no, both way too dominant. I agree. Yeah, but it is. It is not. It's, this isn't. I'm not equating Sentinels to Doms at all. But there is something about the vibe about Don that. What to me makes him both um, protector, tutorial, uh, yeah, very assertive. Um, yeah, very. Um, he very much takes charge of things. So between the territorialness and the way he likes to just be in charge, he kind of expects everybody to follow. It translates to me to both Dawn of Power writing a BDSM story and Sentinel Power writing Sentinel Guide. Um, but I, I just want to clarify that because I don't make any typical equation between the traits of a sentinel and the traits of a dom. But in the case of, of Don Epps, I think that his entire personality speaks to both. So, I could see Colby as a guy Colby's, a problem. Um, Colby's problematic, though, because in, in canon, Colby is actually um, a CIA plant. Um, on yeah. Don's team, so um, that has played. Yeah, but Tony is a different kind of character from from Don. Um, Don um, Don's not exactly the most empathetic person. He's very confident. And he doesn't have time for your shit. <laughs> All <Yeah>. your shit. <laughs> Whereas Tony is confident and strong, but he also has time for your shit. He has a lot of empathy. All the shit. Yeah. T- Tony Tony has like... Um... Yeah, yeah. He definitely... If you asked Don to meditate, he would ask you if he could clean his gun while he did it. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think if I were doing something with Don, I probably would diverge a little later than I would do if I was doing something with Tony. To t- Tony, um, Charlie, um, like maybe season two or three, before the whole Crystal Hoyt thing, when he um, t- t- I'd definitely do it before them. There's, there's, I would no, like to rewrite that scene where he tells the people at the FBI that he can't do his job without Charlie. Because what? 
Yeah. Yeah, that's that's not cool. The FBI was doing its job long before Charlie came around. So <laughs> moving meditation. Yeah. How do you meditate? I clean my gun. Polish my boots. I'm sure there are people out there who do meditate exactly that way. Uh so, <laughs> so Don is a is definitely a um A, a, a little bit later in the show, I think, is where I would kind of move things for him. Um, and if I were trying to bring Tony over into that, because crossovers, I'm not shy about them, uh, I would definitely do it. Hmm. Well, see, there you, when you do your crossover, you have to consider two divergence points, right? Um, and I like, I've lately been really into Tony leaving around the same time Tom Morrow does. So... That would be first season of numbers if I were trying to intersect those. Well, the way to do that was that Tom Morrow didn't leave NCIS to go to Homeland. He did it to go to the FBI. Yeah. He's confirmed as the new director of the FBI, and he takes Tony with him. And sends Tony to L.A., Eventually, I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be a direct. And then goes into hiding LA. because Gibbs is going to be hunting for him. <laughs> My former team is looking for me. Um, I do like the idea of Tom going to Homeworld too. That would be really interesting. Um, but if you want to cross over with uh, numbers. The easiest way to do that would be to have Morrow go to the FBI and to tell me to go with him. That works for me. I have no bad feelings about it. And eventually, Tony could end up in the in the LA office. Uh, for whatever reason um, you want to percolate on, whether he, you know, if it's a Sentinel and God universe, um, he could uh, he could be there doing some kind of assessment and meet this Sentinel. Because I've not read Don Epps slash Tony Dinozo, but I would. I would read the hell out of it. <laughs> Someone That's wrote a lot of last search. here. Someone wrote it last year, and I was—I think I think recall. I want to say it was Litgal wrote it last. Wrote Don Tony last year, or the year before. Um, now I must go to Ao3 and look. Let me write that down. If I spell Tony's name right, you think I'd have that a lock on that? But a crossover and a new relationship. Oh is no, way to it was. Her. It was it was Shade Shifter, wrote Don oh. Tony last year. Um, the story is called Drawing the Line. It is definitely worth reading. Uh, it's 44K-ish. Let me get the link. There we go. I shall pin it. It is pinned. 
took me a long time to read this story because it is an, a season 10 AU. Um, and I don't usually read stories that have Tony um, at, the, at NCIS past season eight. It, I do occasionally. So sometimes I have to really like poke, see it for a long time. And then I go, mm, um, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Um, Yeah, so there, there you go. That there is that someone did write that one. Um, but there are a lot of divergent points for Tony in in CIS. Um, so many, depending upon what you want and to not do. Not all of them and are traumatic. A, no, agreed. And it, what you want to do, this is again when we come back to what you're trying to accomplish, makes your divergence point something really important. So if anybody in the chat room has an idea of something you would want to accomplish for Tony, throw it out there and we can noodle on what we think the good divergence points would be for that. Well, for Tony, I mean, the first obvious one is when Morrow leaves. For me, that's a really, you know, it will, depending on where you stick Morrow, you can push Tony into practically any other fandom, whether it be Stargate or Numbers or... You could leave him at Homeland for a while, and then Hawaii Five O starts. <laughs> yeah, I mean he could be. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, the opening at Yankee White is a good episode to have him. I mean, if you're looking for internal motivation um, for Tony to leave, getting started out of the body bag would be a good one. Yeah. You are really spoiled for choice if you're looking at the internal motiva- motivation. Um, but if you're looking more towards you're trying to accomplish something, like the external plot, an external motivator, um, it becomes a little bit, it's a little bit of a different assessment. Because if you're looking at an external plot event, external events to motivate Tony to leave, it doesn't matter as much um, if, if the event is, is sufficient to push him out the door because him getting fed up and leaving is more of an internal thing than he just gets a really good opportunity and Morrow's good at talking him into, into things. Also at that point, if you do it at the Morrow break, um, there's, there's Kate's death. There's the plague. There's, um, Morrow leaving. Um, and I don't think Tony is at that point really drowning in his in his codependence for Gibbs at that point. Yeah, I agree. I think it's very easy for him to, to walk away um, before all that shit with Shepard goes down. And depending upon what you how you want to position it, there's multiple points in there that you could do it. So if you wanted it just to be from a Tony's lost Kate, he's he's in a good position to accept change with having lost Kate and having recovered from the plague and all of that. And so Morrow's leaving and he offers Tony a job and Tony just goes, This is a good time. But very similar time period, right around the time that Morrow leaves, you could have do it have the impetus be that Ziva comes to work for the team. And that really, we've talked before about how that really is very offensive. And 
that could be a motivator for Tony to go, okay, I'm done. It's a good straw that breaks the camel's back kind of moment. Is Ziva showing up that day? And Tony could go, okay, I should have taken Morrow up on his offer. And he calls Morrow right away and says, is the offer still on the table? Um, you could even do, I mean, depending upon what you want to do, you could have Tony fail his um, field qualification after the plague. Cannon glossed over that, but it was ridiculous that he would be two weeks off of the plague and be able to carry a gun out in the field. He hadn't had time to have a firearms requalification, and he wouldn't have passed it anyway. So then Morrow has got a sick agent who can't be in the field as an investigator, but he's a very good agent. So what's he do with him? Well, he's got a place that he could stick Tony where he wouldn't have to go out into the field because he'd be living and working in a big mountain in Colorado. <laughs> and then when I he like gets it. there, Janet can make him feel better. <laughs> and now he doesn't have a plague problem, but he likes where he is so much, and, oh, he winds up on a field team. Life is strange. I did plot a story um, where Tony leaves around that period in time. Uh, I worked on it a little bit, but it was not really told from Tony's point of view. It was told from Gibbs' point of view during the declassification because they never knew where Tony went. So during the course of the declassification, Tony's duty assignment, um, which is Atlantis, um, becomes known to NCIS that that's where he's stationed. And then it, as more information drops about what's been going on in Atlantis, they find out that he's been um, originally started off um, going out with one of the AR teams and then ultimately wound up leading one of the Atlantis recognizance teams. So the whole thing was plotted to be told nothing about what was going on from Tony's point of view or how he got there or anything like that, but just seeing it through the lens of Gibbs um, as the declassification happened and understanding uh, what had happened to Tony and where he had been and what had gone on. I don't read Rodney Tony personally um, just because that's rude to fuck your brother's soulmate. I said it before. That's the party line. You don't do it. Um, but I respect everybody else's right to write and read it. It's just I I gave myself a very profound headcanon about Tony and John Shepard, and uh, therefore Tony can never get in Rodney's pants. Or John's. That should go without saying. <laughs> that really should go without saying. But – I, I I could not read anything that violates my OTP. Unless it was like... And I will go down. With that ship, yeah. Unless it was before yeah, John I'll and go down with that got ship. together. Because you had plotted... I don't know if you actually started writing it, but you had plotted like a, like a little porny thing where between some major conflict or something, you talked about it on one show, where John and mm-hmm. Jack had a little fling. Um, yeah, I always assume that those little things are like appetizers before John and Rodney get together for the main course. Mm-hmm. You, you know, did some really beautiful art for it. I did. It's true. <laughs> I'm just not gonna find that art. It's beautiful, guys. 
it's one of, it's one of my first with um, one of the first I did with significant photo manipulation. But yeah, she, we were talking about it. It was like, oh, oh wow, that's um, that's a, uh, I really like this idea. So yeah, but I always figure it's like a little 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 porny stories before you know John gets the man he's supposed to be with, right? Where is my beautiful image? Oh, there it is. Can I share it? Yeah. Ta-da. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, hmm. It's like, go write some porn. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I can do kind of like one-off things, but not with Tony, though. It could be other people, but not with Tony, because... Um, I think that if he, you know, like I said, John's his brother. I think if he found out that he was fucking the guy that his brother wound up with, I think that he would have a hard time with it. Rodney's off limits. <laughs> but um, there's a there's actually quite a lot of Tony John Shepard, and there's occasionally I see a plot, like I'm, you know, scrolling through, you know, NCIS 6, and I see somebody's written, uh, and the plot sounds really interesting, and I'm kind of like biting my nails going, that sounds really interesting, and then I think about the pairing, and I go, oh, no damn it <laughs> i can't i can't i can't do it it's terrible so canon divergence points for tony are plentiful um i i prefer to get him out earlier for most of my stories um season eight Dead Air tends to be the hard stop. It's got to stop there. I did write one short where he doesn't leave until the end of season nine, I think, when the when the explosion happened. But he did leave the team. He was just hadn't left NCIS. Um, I actually think I wrote that for the Steve McGarrett prompt um, on the big short. Yeah. Yeah. Where um, Tony was doggedly staying with NCIS to prove that he wasn't the problem on the team. Um, mm-hmm. That Vance had tried to make it out that Tony was the reason why that shit had happened. But dead air. And Second Ave was giving Tony the opportunity to prove that he wasn't the problem. And so Tony had gotten his own team. And then the, and then the bombing happened. Because, you know. I had somebody write me that didn't think that that bombing was canon. They said, well, you know, that's pretty dramatic to insert to get them together. I'm like, no, no, that happened. Somebody did park a, a car with a bomb in it in front of NCIS and blow the building up. That that happened. And Ducky had a heart attack over it. Yeah, Ducky had a heart attack. He was at Jimmy's wedding, and he had a heart attack on the beach. Um, and Jimmy didn't wind up getting married till the next season because they put it off. Um And uh, I think that's the one where that yeah Tony and Ziva were trapped in an elevator in that one in Canon. But since I had Tony not on the team, of course he was in a different part of the building, and I wrote him trapped in the in the in the rubble in that one. I almost wrote a full length story on that one, but then I got distracted with other projects, as often happens. Um, there's a great you know, comfort even though, in having an OTP. Um, yeah, I agree. 
Like, I would actually, even though I wrote Thorin with somebody else personally, he, I kind of do OTT him with Bilbo. I, I can't explain my lapse in judgment, but um, I actually, actually, I can, which is that I am, have always been somewhat experimental. Um, in my writing, I'm always willing to try things, so... And I think that that was a case of me being super uh, literal with timelines is how that whole plot wound up up occurring. (laughs) But I do like to tell you to be the only person that you could um, diverge in NCIS. I would like to see the story where Gibbs doesn't go off just for his um, siesta after the bombing. Sticks around and and deals with with his stuff. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and get some fucking therapy. That would be great, too. Um, and it would be really interesting to see. Um, but you just need to recognize that, you know, your, your favorite character isn't the only character that you can play with when it comes to canon divergence. And sometimes taking a character like Gibbs, who's very polarizing, um, and putting them putting him on a different path could be interesting. Yeah, I agree. that would be interesting. But yeah, well, okay. I would try not to write it terrible. <laughs> and the thing is, it doesn't even have to be necessarily from Gibbs' point of view, right? I mean, it depends upon what you want to do. If you want to write a story where things go better for Tony because of Gibbs' changes, you could canon diverge events for Gibbs, and then that results in the ripple effect is that it's better for everybody else. Um, same thing for, for – you could even do that with McGee's. You could have, like, some – divergence points from McGee that result in really positive changes on the team. That'd be, I think that'd be pretty easy to put together. I'd like to see one where um, Aerie gets killed in autopsy. Yes, that would be interesting. Ziva was the one who shot Ari. But she said oh, that Tony knocked Tony out. knocked Ziva oh. out. Any opportunity oh, to yeah, punch okay. Ziva in the head is a good one, apparently. Yeah, sorry, I, sorry <laughs> I read that wrong. I was like, wait, what? It would be really interesting if Gibbs wasn't alone in the house because him and Tony were shacking up and Tony hears noise, he comes downstairs and kills both of them. Ziva and Ari, under the assumption that Ziva is there with Ari. Which would be a good assumption since she's his handler. Right? Boom, boom. And she's she's pointing a gun into the basement. Problem solved. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when Tony is, we talked about him being like the phantom bicycle, like everybody wants to ride him. Um, and I like that there are so many canon divergence points for him that make a lot of sense because it becomes really easy to pull him away from NCIS and put him into other fandoms. Um, and then you create a canon divergence point for the fandom he's going in because by virtue of his presence. So um, him leaving NCIS um, can be like the device you use to diverge um, MCU or to diverge um, Hawaii Five-0 or um, Teen Wolf or wherever you put him, he can be your canon divergence, like plot device, because a new character should diverge the canon. And when they don't, it's weird. I, please take that on board. It is so strange to me when I read different characters on teams and everything happens exactly the same way. It's like reading a Harry Potter, you know, Harry was raised by his real parents and yet everything happened the same kind of story. It's like, how could this be? But even though I love to take Tony out of um, NCIS and put him elsewhere, I am really sensitive to, I'm, I'm mostly careful about who I pair him with. And I have a, like, I have more hard no's on the pairings than I do yeses. Um but then every once in a while, there's one that I just kind of, you know, you kind of do that, cock your head and go, I don't know about that. It could work. I'm not sure. And then you get there and you're like, oh, yeah, that works. <laughs> that was good. I enjoyed that very much. We need to have more. Tony, please go climb Thor on a regular basis. True. When when you bring in an outside character and they they immediately perfectly fix everything, that is, you're kind of Mary suing that character a little bit, which people tend to find annoying. Um, I find it irritating because it comes off as disingenuous in a lot in a lot of ways. It's like really it's very very contrived uh, that a character just comes in and just magically fixes everything. Um, Unless you're writing crack and it, they're kind of like the Mary Poppins of law enforcement or something, and everywhere they go, everything works better, you know, that could be funny as fuck. So um, if somebody wants to write Tony Dinozo as the Mary Poppins of law enforcement, please let me know when you're done. I would be delighted to read it. <laughs> it would be great. He's practically perfect in every way. Perfect in yeah, he is. He is. Senna. Senna remembers the Tony Spark plant. Yeah, but don't make him a smug Mary Poppins. Make him a cheerful Mary Poppins. <laughs> Yes, definitely cheerful and, and, and entertaining, funny. No smugness. Smug arrogance is the most terrible thing I, I, I see in Tony Vick. And I, I just, I, I hate it. Yeah. When people write him as being a, you know, quote-unquote badass and what he really is is an asshole, I'm like, oh, 
you are just pooping on my unicorn, and I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't. <laughs> there's a thought. There's a there's a thick line. There should be a thick line between badass and asshole. Unfortunately, for some people, it's not. So someone suggested that we send Tony to Santa Barbara, which I immediately assume they mean um, psych. And having Tony and John Spencer in the same scene would be hysterical. Um, <laughs> I don't know if this exists, but it needs to. Uh, making little murder minion rhymes. Well, there's always her theme song to consider. Okay, so we know Tony has lots of... Well, NCIS has lots of potential divergence points for every single character. A really good divergence point, depending upon what you want to do. Um and whether or not you're looking for an external device to be pulling your character away or you're looking for an internal motivator. Um, the internal motivator is a little bit strange to me. When it, The later it gets in the season, the harder it is for me to deal with the internal motivator being the reason he goes. Because, like, why didn't you get set up 10 years ago? It, this is so weird. Um, there, but there's something to be said for the final straw. I mean, you know... Yeah, but why all have those moments put something over and over and over again, and then just sometimes it's like this tiny little galling thing, and it's just like I'm fucking done. Okay, I am fucking sure, done. I, I cannot believe you bumped me with your car. We're done. We're fighting right now. Let me take off my shoes. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember what episode it was, but it was. A, I'm pretty sure it's after Dead Air. Um, I'm pretty sure it's actually after Ziva leaves. I think it's when Ellie's there. Um, somebody, somebody who's seen the later seasons, I've seen the later seasons piecemeal, a little bit here and there because my family watches it, so I catch an episode now and then. Uh, and I think that Ellie was there when this happened, which is, it's a really subtle thing, but McGee and, and Tony are kind of arguing over who's in charge of the case, and Gibbs gives it to McGee. And I could see that very easily being a teeny tiny little straw that is just too much for Tony. Just too much because Tony is in charge when Gibbs isn't around. That's the chain of command at NCIS. And the fact that Gibbs so blatantly in that episode ignored it and undermined him was, it was such a small thing, right? It was one line. But it was so emblematic of the way Tony had been treated through the whole series that it would be so easy for that to be um, the the thing that was too much. But then you do kind of have to do some character work on why he had stayed through all of that shit. Anyway. Well, at that point, McGee was no longer a probationary agent. He'd been there a long time. But what I would say is that that whole thing about Tony being undercover for a decade in CIS is bullshit. 
we had a whole conversation about how someone going undercover for even a year is so emotionally stressful that it's just impossible to maintain. So him being yeah. undercover for years upon years upon years at NCIS, it, it my suspension of disbelief is in my husband's man cave right now. It fell through the floor and into his man cave. He's not happy. It's having Oreos and a beer downstairs right now. Um, (laughs) But the thing about, um, we talked about this, that he could be a mole for that long, but it's a very different thing being a mole who's waiting to be activated, um, where you live that life and you get entrenched in it until you're told, go do something, versus reporting back and being an undercover agent, um, you know, for a decade or for 15 years or something like that. The psychological toll that would take on somebody, I just don't see it really but being... Also- What's the goal of the mission? Because at that point, the agency has changed hands as far as directors go three times. So who's the target? And yeah. if it's Gibbs, then, then Tony has all the evidence that he needs. <laughs> I tend to see stories. I, I mean, I haven't read any story. I, I've, I've seen a couple stories that talk about him being long-term undercover. I don't tend to I – haven't, I haven't really read them. Um, but I tend to my, – my go-to assumption is that this is a case of someone wanting to preserve canon for some reason and that they're using um, him being undercover as a reason to keep him at NCIS so that canon can stay intact. But, you know, cut the cord, folks. Just let it go. That's the point of diverging from canon is to get a, is to move away from it. You're supposed to fork away from canon. Now, how much you fork? And yes, I'm saying fork. Um, is up to you, but it is supposed to be a break. It is supposed to diverge. It is not supposed to have canon happening, and all that's different is um, character motivation, which is what has, is happening in situations like that, and you see it in Harry Potter, um, where canon is just happening, and all you've got is different character motivations being explained, and sometimes explained in really bizarre ways, for why, like, Harry still does the canon thing. Um, That's not really canon divergence. Character motivator for doing the thing that happened in canon is not canon divergent at all, in my opinion. So if your canon events are staying completely intact, you have failed your mission. Start a new one. And also, why? That's not entertaining. If I want to read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, I'll go read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I don't need you to tell me that story all over again. Yeah, because character motivate. Cause just reading about character motivations on top of canon, right? Um, <laughs> elements. Is, who, who needs that? I mean, it's very popular. I get that it's a very popular type of. I think they call it canon compliant or something. Writing. I guess it is popular, but that's that, for starters. That isn't the challenge. That isn't the challenge for July or November. It is not to be canon compliant. You do have to be canon compliant up to a point. Which means you can't write a then complete Then you must AU. diverge. You must go on an adventure. 
And a divergence is not just a character having a realization and then doing all the same things. That's, no. No, they have to act on their realization. But this would be a good time to switch to The Hobbit. Okay. Hobbity divergences. There's, you're also spoiled for choice in The Hobbit, depending upon what you want to do. I like the idea of diverging after the Karak um, before they meet the bear. Um, but one thing you need to keep in mind um, if you are diverging, that your characters don't know what was ahead of them in canon. So they don't know that they would have been held hostage by the elf king. Um, they don't know about the bear until the bear shows up. So what I would suggest is when you're moving into um, picking out your projects for July and for November is to watch or read the canon up to your point of divergence and then stop because that's all the data that your character has. That's what you have to work with. And then you know what's going to happen so you can plot how that information gets to them at that point. If it gets to them at all. I like the Karak because uh, Thorin's feeling pretty good about his Hobbit, um, and the major conflict with the orcs is over, and um, he has the ring. Of course, Gollum's still alive, but um, that can work to your advantage later. Uh, and so you have you have these um, these elements that you know could happen that did happen in canon that you don't want to happen, and so you work your way around them. How do you keep them out of the Elf King's jail? The I can't say his name. That's why he's Elf King. Elf King. Um, and uh, I say I say Thranduil, but um, I've had people correct my pronunciation in more than one way. So <laughs> since I haven't got corrected consistently, I'm gonna stick with Thranduil. I'm gonna stick with Elf King. There we go. Um, but, but I don't even know. I, I'm not sure that a proposal done with Sauron's Horcrux is a good idea. It's just not a good idea. Okay. Anyways, um, I don't know. I think that, 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 that's my point that's really interesting. And the other point would be is when he finds the ring. Now, Dilbo doesn't know what the ring is. Um, Bilbo doesn't find out what the ring is until decades, decades later. He just thinks it's a magical ring, and he doesn't think anything about using it. Um, he doesn't even apparently know the um, the legend of the One Ring. And in fact, Gandalf had to go look it up because it was, I guess, it had happened so long ago that he didn't immediately yeah. recognize it either. <laughs> he had a, he, he had a su- su- suspicion though, which is why he was out looking. Right. He just needed to. He was gone for it. like years. Actually, he was gone for years. Um, in the book, before uh, before he comes back and tells Frodo that he needs to take the ring to um, Rivendell. Um, 
But you could have you could have um, somebody um, step in. You could have um, Mahal. I think it'd be really interesting to have Mahal kind of go. Oh no 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 no. One of my wife's little flower children just picked up an evil object. <laughs> I need to do something about this. <laughs> Another one of my wife's flower children is going to be corrupted by this evil. And what if Yovana took um, uh, Smeagol's corruption very personally and Mahal steps in and says, I'm, you know, we're not going to let this happen again. I'm not going to let another one of your, your little flowers go, go, go down like that. And so he maybe on the Karak, he he appears before them. And after the Jawaro calm down and stop fainting, because <laughs> they're full of drama. <laughs> yeah. He bestows upon Thorin the task of taking Bilbo to Mordor. That'd be a hell of a long dry spell because Gollum had the ring for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. <laughs> but no, I do think that um, I think that you know, it would have made her really sad, and maybe she does, you know, kind of try to keep the the hobbits in the Shire where she can protect them. And and Mahal's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna fix this. We're gonna fix this. This is bullshit. Why don't you go distract Uru while I do this? Go out and talk to him about your garden. Go ask for something. Go, just go go distract him. <laughs> I'm gonna need about. An hour, two, two hours. I'm going to need two hours. <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> That's just ridiculous, Ellie. <laughs> Ellie, you finally found what's going to put you in the corner tonight. Girl. <laughs> no dwarf that looks like that is pure of body and mind, Okay. <laughs> Sauron did teach Mahal. Mahal did teach Sauron. And Saruman is supposed to be um, in Mahal's service. You ever get an itch and it's like that's all you can think about in that moment? It's like everything else shorts out until... You get your back scratcher and claw your back up. Sorry, I, yeah, I had a little, I had a little, my, I had a little brain moment because it was like, I'm sorry, I can't think anymore. I have to scratch this. Okay. I just think, yeah, I think that would be really interesting if Mahal kind of stepped in and said, okay, um, this is what you need to do. So that's because they're not going to ignore the instruction from Mahal. I would think not. And so that's a good place for them to figure out for something to happen to put them on a different path, which um, Mahal is a good choice for that, or um, the finding out about the ring is a good choice for that. Um, So there's various methods of um, 
diverging at that point. Uh, we talked a little bit last night about diverging at, it was last night, wasn't it? At diverging mm-hmm. right after the Goblin Caves, which you could also wait to do until, um, it's, it's very similar in the timeline, right after the Goblin Caves versus waiting until the Karak. So um, those are similar. Yeah, it just point. puts you in a better position um, as far as characterizations go, because Bilbo was giving them the speech about, um, I want to help you go home. And then also yeah. he's he's defended Thorin's life from the Pale Orc. Yeah. And so when it comes to other points of divergence, again, we come back to what do you want to do? If you're trying to, you know, I think that diverging before um, Thorin is dangling Bilbo off the battlements is a good plan if you're trying to get the two of them together. So, 100% agree. I, I don't particularly want that, that past event to be to taint their relationship so i would choose my divergence point to be before that um and there's plenty of choices you could have it diverge um right at the moment that bilbo finds the arkenstone it could be when he decides to go take it to bard it could be it, it could be as far back as um like we were just talking about in the karak at the karak so you have if if what you're trying to do is get them together and then you have to decide what is it you don't want to see happen in the canon and then you have to decide what events of canon do you want to preserve and between the events you want to preserve and the thing you don't want to happen is where your divergence needs to be. Excellent explanation. I, um, Lily just plot bloodied me and now I'm sad. <laughs> uh, the King I, Gollum thing. Yeah. What, what if what if Gollum made him? What if Gollum succeeded in attacking him, and Bilbo ends up killing Gollum to get out of the of the cave? And so when he stumbles upon when he catches up with the Dwaro, he's not going to be interested in giving them a speech about. Um, finding their home because he's going to be devastated. He's just killed something. And he's a hobbit. He's never had to do that. He's never had to defend his life that way. And this is before the pale orc. And so here he is covered in blood and his and he's heart sick. Right. I think he's heart sick. And so how would they respond to that? Especially if you notice that Gollum's feet were hairy, especially and he knows that he's killed a hobbit. Or what once was a hobbit. It would be it would give give him a perspective on the ring. An immediate perspective. Don't get in on the, the corner, ring. Lily. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would call that canon divergent. I would call not call that an AU because you have canon is intact up to the point where Gollum succeeds in attacking Bilbo. And Bilbo reacting and defending himself results in a canon divergence. So I would not call that an AU. Well, I mean, it's an AU. Of course, everything's an AU. But it is a canon divergent AU as opposed to a coffee shop AU, modern setting AU, or whatever, a time travel AU. But I would call it a canon divergent AU. I think if Bilbo made the connection between the ring and Gollum and what Gollum became... I think that he 
would ne- he would he would do everything he could to make sure the ring never went back to the Shire. Yeah, I agree. And so then it becomes a question of... It's just a magic dream. It's a dangerous ring. Yeah. So then do you diverge right there to... Does he stay on on task and go... and go treat with a dragon using the ring to help him? Or does he tell what he fears about the ring that it corrupted a hobbit um, trying to murder people and that the hobbit was obsessed, that that, 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 that that thing that used to be a hobbit was obsessed with this ring and what's wrong with this ring? And do they then go to Mordor right then? Well, they would only go to Mordor if they knew what it was and they knew that the only way to destroy it was to take it to Mordor. Would they look at it and see that it was the one ring? That's the question. The Juaro might yeah. be more inclined to think that more than Gandalf. Well, so Gandalf has a ring of power too, so it makes no sense to me that he didn't recognize the one ring immediately. He has a ring of power but on his hand. Wasn't Gandalf sent to... Um, he didn't want to come to Middle-earth. Um, and wasn't like he that partially sent, sent for, sent for um, Sauron and the one ring issue? Gandalf but he was came afraid. to Middle-earth for Sauron, and he was afraid. And the less fear he has, the lighter his robes became until he became the White Wizard when he stood before the Balrog, which is also a corrupted Maya, um, just like Sauron's a corrupted Maya. Um, and he defeated the Balrog and shed the last of his fear and came into his full knowledge as the White Wizard. Right. So he is on, he's in Middle Earth about Sauron and about the ring. So I have to believe that his hesitation over that ring was not that he didn't know what it was, but that he was scared and that he desperately didn't want it to be what he thought it was. He didn't want it to be the one ring. Remember in the scene in the movie where he throws it in the fire and there's no words on it and he, he, he like relaxes in relief? Yeah. I think it would be Dwalin that would comfort him. I think it would be Dory or Thorin. Dory and Thorin both have um, experiences. Not that I think Thorin would think of Bilbo as a child, but Dory and Thorin both have very... um, they have paternal experiences in their background, and I think that if Bilbo was that upset, that devastating, he was crying, that one of them would reach out for him before Dwalin would. But yeah, their experience with the innocence. Um, you know, because Thorin helped raise Keely and Feely, and Dory raised Ori. So it would be like, don't know how a, a Balrog, beco- how Maya becomes a Balrog, but I know that. Um, they are fallen Maya, just like um, the orcs are basically, and the what's it, the Urukai are fallen elves, the corrupted elves. So basically, all the ugly, fucked up things except for trolls that are on Arda actually came from Eru. 
it's like he sends one thing and it gets fucked up, so he sends more things to unfuck the fuck the fucks up, and then they get fucked up. <laughs> and there's, there's a, a lot of to do, and it falls to a hobbit to do it. I think you're right, Fashion. I think it was the Morgarth, but I have not read that in a very, very long time. Morgarth. Okay, so, yeah, because... The Maiar were seduced and corrupted by Melkor. Um, right. Yeah, look at this motherfucker. Look what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to do about this? Send one of your flowers to take care of it. <laughs> Yeah, if you use the device of Yavanna and Mahal, um, you could even have Bilbo's grief about killing. Somebody had mentioned further up about um, that Free and Gollum um, may have alerted Yavanna. Maybe they don't pay very close attention to what's going on in Middle Earth. I don't know. But maybe Bilbo's grief and, and Gollum sort of being, maybe he was a taint on Yavanna's magic. And that that being lifted and Bilbo's grief caught her attention and she paid attention. And maybe she did something or she talked to her husband and she said, we have to intervene. Maybe they sent the Ents to help deal with the spiders in the forest or to guide um, the company through. Or, I mean, can you imagine how the elves would react differently if Ents were guiding the company through the, through the forest? I'm sending my flower. <laughs> yeah, there is so much canon um, in Lord of the Rings that it's. Imp- I think it's honestly impossible to know it all. It's one of the reasons why I think I was never really... Um, I read I read some really entertaining stories in Lord of the Rings that I enjoyed very much and saw authors getting beat up for their lack of canon awareness. But there is so much. There is so much canon um, to try to get all that stuff down. And I really admire people who do get it all down and manage to incorporate large parts of it. But, you know, it's part of fandom to just kind of take what you like and leave, you know, and leave the rest. So, fuck canon. You, you come up with... And yeah, you fuck make his story and turn fuck his languages and I'm gonna do what I want. It's all this stupid diacritical marks. Um, but you make your story internally consistent. And yeah, but still they're terrible. But you still have to put them all in. Um, only make your well, story a change software like I did recently. Fucker. Yeah. Um, but make your story internally consistent and then um, just don't worry about it. Because it, it's really hard to and tag it writing Y F. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know a lot of people who were intimidated out of writing in Lord of the Rings because of um, I'm just going to call them canon Nazis who just go after anybody who has anything in their canon explanations that's wrong, and that's just that's just not fandom. Let's move on. <laughs> That's not what we do. 
And it's not even about what you remember, right? There is, we're talking about a ton of supplemental materials that have nothing to do with books that I thought The Hobbit was a great read. The, the Lord of the Rings to me was not a great read. It was incredibly interesting world building and an interesting plot delivered in a way that I would wanted to kind of want to rip the pages out and burn them. You could tell he was um, being paid by the word. Oh, you totally could. I hate the narrative style in The Lord of the Rings. So, but it is fascinating, the world. It's the plot, the storyline is super interesting. And thank you, Peter Jackson, for delivering that in a way that I found captivating. Even if it wasn't always accurate, I mean, I, the, one of the first things I picked up on the in. So I remembered enough of the Lord of the Rings to scratch my head over there being elves at the Battle of Helm's Deep. But, you know, whatever. Um, and there yeah, not being a, uh, what's his name, Tom Barp? The dude in the forest. Oh, um, Tom Barp. Tom Bobadil? Really? Tom Bombadil? Yes. Bombadil. Bomba- Bombadil. <clears throat> Tom Bombadil. The prick with the poor. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> they, they, cut out, they cut out a lot of stuff um, for the movies, but you know what? I didn't even care. And I think you'd have to be really deeply entrenched in um, the Lord of the Rings canon to, to really care about some of the about some of the liberties he took, but still, I really... I really enjoyed seeing that and seeing the parts of the book, the books that I enjoyed kind of brought to life, even if it wasn't exactly like the books. But let's say you've just got The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. That's still a lot of canon. But then you have all of the supplemental materials that explain everything that people expect you to know all that too. And that starts to become like homework, and that's not fun. Some people enjoy it. I would say most people don't. Um, I enjoyed yeah. the movies. I, th- I thought they were beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, you know, don't have a problem with the elves at Helm's Deep. Uh, I'm, you know, honestly surprised that that didn't happen in canon because um, as attached as Elf King is to his offspring, he would think that as soon as he found out what his offspring was up to, he would have launched an army in that direction to catch up with his offspring. <laughs> Yeah, you would think. Just saying. <laughs> Seems unlikely. So, you when it comes to the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit or you know whatever, um, just if you want to write in that fandom, don't get sucked into worrying so much. Uh, get you a good map. So that you can, you know, it's easier to articulate where your characters are going and why if you've got a reasonable map. And then somebody is inevitably going to write you and say, this isn't right. And you're going to be like, dude, I am internally consistent and double bird them because fuck that. Say fuck you. Delete. Kira's got a lovely fuck you page. You can just send them the link. I have it. Yeah. I have a shortcut right, right on my bookmarks bar. Kira's fuck you page so that I always have it handy if I need to tell somebody I don't even get you bitches the link because I'm <laughs> nice like that 
So the little old lady giving people the bird. Now, if she'd be giving people two birds, that would be even better. Yeah. And the page says, you have been sent to this page because you're a thoughtless twat. You responded to a tweet, a Facebook status, a blog posting, or a piece of fan fiction in a way that grossly offended the writer. Or you could have sent a stupidly offensive email. Maybe you demonstrated a sense of entitlement on a scale so epic you left the person who gave you this link at a loss for words. That's okay, though, because they have me. At any rate, you've reached this page because of your very poor fucking behavior, so here are a few rules for you. And then she gives the rules. Um, So... Feel free if somebody's giving you a hard time about not following canon closely enough or getting your canon wrong or sending the elves in the wrong direction in Middle Earth, send them to that page. That's all you need to say. The little old fuck you lady. And then it ends with P.S. Kiss my ass. (laughs) I forgot that part. <laughs> and it's a lot easier to keep it on your on, on a bookmark or an easily accessible bookmark, so you can get to it at a moment's notice. I have sent easily a dozen people to this page, if not more. <laughs> I don't need to tell them the fuck it off. Is I there can get Kira to do it. And it is there for your use. We've got ten minutes. Should we keep noodling on the Hobbit, or should we make a stab at another one? Um, let's look at stab at another one. We got a few minutes left. Um, is there anything in the fandom in the chat room? Is there anything that stands out for you that you'd like us to noodle on in this last minutes we got? First come, first serve. Brucey Bear. Bruce Banner. Oh. Um I'm actually, I am four pages into my plot for Nano um, on my Tony um, Stark, uh, Bruce Banner, Steve, and Bucky saving the world. (laughs) The Bonanza. Something's going to happen. The the Bruce Banner, Bucky Barnes, Bonanza. We'll just just call it that. Um, It's it's alliterative, so we like it. I I have I have a bunch of post-it notes because I was noodling on it in bed and that's what I had to hand was post-it notes. She doesn't know number five. That's the one because I had this reader who kept telling me that um, if I wrote sex scenes for um, one of my um, one of my it was for the birth of the serpent king that I had to make Draco the bottom that she wouldn't read that Draco wasn't the bottom. Like I got like a hundred of those emails. I mean, she was so fucking serious. And don't ever tell me to put somebody on bottom because you think they're the girl. And and that was basically her point that he was the more feminine of the two of them, so therefore he should be the bottom. Fuck that noise. Um, I want to give I want to give Bruce a really strong wealthy in your face partner that can ruin Thaddeus Ross's life. Now I wonder who that could be. I wonder. I wonder I wonder who that could be in the MCU.
I wonder. I'm not mad. No, I'm really, I'm, I'm really, not mad. I'm really curious to see how that would go because Tony's not afraid to tell Thaddeus Ross to kiss his ass anyway. So it would be, you know, if he's gonna go all in for his science, bro, and rock his science love. <laughs> There's a typo on my page. Are you actually mm. by the bottom? Be the bottom. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'll edit that. I can't believe it's been on that page and you're the first one to nitpick me. It's been on that page for a decade. <laughs> Actually, eight is my favorite. Eight is my favorite. It's so weird for a straight woman to say that um, uh, het sex is disgusting. It's so weird. Yeah. I especially like to get therapy part. <laughs> Free advice, get some therapy. They need therapy. That's yeah. ridiculous. Anyways. Um, <laughs> Lily. <laughs> That's a good, I'm not saying that Thor's not a good choice. <laughs> Bruce, but that's funny. The idea of, of of Bruce having somebody was seriously going to bat for him with lawyers. Yeah. And the repulsor. Yeah. And and weapons he won't give anybody else. <laughs> and weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. Now I'm I'm pondering the idea of of Bruce Bucky for um, November. It'd be more of a pre-relationship thing, but I'm still kind of noodling on it because the chemistry isn't quite gelling in my head in my plot notes yet. So, but sometimes with pairings, I just don't know till I get there. It's like, well, I'll try it. I am not willing to take a chance. I'm, I mean, I'm always willing to take a chance there. Weapons of mass destruction. Uh Kira and I already have weapons of mass destruction. They've been targeted at us. We suck. <laughs> you chat. Yeah. We're trying to mass. Tra- it, it, it is like someone launched a weapon of mass destruction in the chat <laughs> when we were trying to when we're trying to mass something. It's like, could somebody please tell me how old this person is? <laughs> I think Lady Holder's having flashbacks. I can use a calculator just as next, just as well as the next bitch. Just don't well, I can, but I mean, it requires. Yeah, but it doesn't. I don't always get the results I expect. <laughs> I can Sometimes use a I... fucking calculator, but if it, if, if, but if it's math, it requires more than a calculator. I'm screwed. And there was no reach around. That's rude. Oh, bite me, Echo. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> People know right where to go, right? You know what that mistake is? It's because I had this visual memory of the flashback where it said 10,000 years ago. 
when Atlantis left Earth, and it just kind of stuck in my head. And you yeah, I'm never going to stop hearing about it. That's okay, <laughs> yeah. because she killed my tea lady. She murdered she my comic relief forever. That cat is definitely... And I also changed the math. Thank you. After I watched your video on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. I got to remember that gif. Okay. So, Bruce. Um, Bruce, I think for me, I would want to diverge things for Bruce as soon as possible. Because I would not want to even see him, Natasha get her hooks into him. Um, no. And I would probably focus more on, like, Tony being more proactive about the team and about um, getting protections for the Avengers and that kind of stuff. And I think that, that I think that if he if Natasha wasn't around because she would be more in Shields camp, it would insulate Bruce from her influence. Because once once that started to go down, the level of betrayal um, that Bruce experienced is really hard to stomach. It really is. Um, what it she really did is. to him in Age, Age of Ultron so infuriated me that I, 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 I was lucky I didn't self-combust right there in the movie theater. I went, no, you didn't. <laughs> right in the middle of I wasn't, I was like, I wasn't the only one. <laughs> like, bitch, what? We're down to 60 seconds. She, I hope you guys had a great Saturday, and we're going to go to the Sprint channel to Sprint. That's what we're going to do. Podcast. We're going to start sprinting at the half hour mark, so it's 1230. It'd be 1230 Central. I'm not sure what that time is for you guys. You guys can figure that out. Um, we'll catch you later. Say good night, Julie. Good night, everyone.